Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Because California is the center of the... Yes, nothing, yeah. nothing exists east of, I'll say Indio. Okay. Indio is as far east as I go. Okay. You can edit this part out, hanging, Victor. Hanging out at Coachella, right? <laughs> like that's uh, my nightmare. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Tuesday, December 15th, California's housing czar is on the podcast, Liam. Whoa, what a get. Big get. Big get. Big get. Yes. Who do we have? We have an interview with Jason Elliott. His official title is the senior counselor to Governor Gavin Newsom, and he is the governor's top housing advisor. This is somebody we've been wanting to have on the podcast to talk about the Newsom administration's policies on homelessness and housing for pretty much since Gavin got elected. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here we are. <laughs> yeah. So we touch <laughs> It's a good interview. Um, and we're devoting yeah. a, a significant chunk of time to it. We touch on homelessness, we touch on renter protections, we touch on housing productions, and we also include a lightning round at the end, which um, I Uh, highly recommend. I was going to try to make a lightning sound, but I think thunder is what makes sound, not lightning, right? So Continuing to edify the podcast, Liam, (laughs) yes. So we're here for the most anticipated segments in all of California housing podcastery for 2020. It is Matt. The avocado of the year. Also known as, I get Matt, Matt likes to call it the golden avocado. Uh, and I like this, this is... I like this role reversal, by the way. This, uh, yeah, this is well, like we're, the, we're trying something new. I know. Yeah. Finally, we're changing it up after two <laughs> years or three years or however long we've been doing this. Anyway, sorry, too, continue. Too long. So this is the most absurd California housing story of not just the past fortnight, which we do every episode, but in fact, the in all of 2020. And so... We have four nominees that we picked among our avocados during this very interesting year. And we also have an even more of a new twist this time. Some listeners may remember back in the summer, we put out a call for a contest. Those who were to donate to Cal Matters and subscribe to the LA Times would be entered into a drawing, one of the most important drawings in the world, clearly, about who would get (laughs) to announce the avocado of the year. And in fact, we have come through on our promise and selected a winner, and he is here with us. He's Stuart Gavin. Stuart, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Stuart, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm very interested in housing policy, and that's why I started listening to the podcast. And I continue to listen to the podcast because I'm currently studying workplace psychology, and you just seem to be a great case study in counterproductive work behavior. <laughs> I like you immediately, Stuart. Yeah, so what, what, what have you learned about Matt and my relationship with your expertise? Well, I have not finished writing up my case study, but it seems to be a way that, you know, teams should not communicate. <laughs> well, thanks for still listening, despite yes. your c- clinical disapproval of our relationship style. Thank you for that. Stuart, uh, where yeah. are you a student? I am a student at Roosevelt University in Chicago. So not even California? No, no, not even California. I am in another area where I pay too much for rent. Take that, crooked media. Look at our national appeal here. Yeah. (laughs) As a Chicagoan, why the interest in California housing policy? 
like many things, California kind of is, I think, a few years ahead of the rest of the nation. And I'm sure that we're going to be dealing with these same housing issues in the rest of the country, especially places like Texas and Asheville, where all the Californians are fleeing right now. Right. There's yep. going to be housing issues there. Or Idaho. I think that you guys talked about that in one of your podcasts. Have you ever entertained the thought of moving here? I have. And I'd love to. I would definitely pay a premium in rent to uh, have nicer weather than Chicago. One more question. How do you listen to the podcast? Are you like washing the dishes, put on Matt and Liam kind of guy? Are you a folding laundry kind of guy or uh, walking to school? Well, it, it used to be walking to school, but now there is no walking to school. So now yeah, it's right. actually, I, I, I listen to you guys right after I'm done with strict scrutiny when I'm on my runs. Oh, okay. So we're part of your podcast portfolio. You then. are, you are. Ooh. Oh, okay. And I have a question for you, if that's okay. Yeah, of yeah. course. Have you ever gotten a cease and desist order from the Rolling Stones or Mick Jagger? <laughs> <laughs> try, try as we might, we haven't. That's the one marker of success that we've yet to achieve. So, so I, I am the only person listening to this then. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> that's right. We neglected to mention that you were the only entrant in our uh, housing contest, which is in fact not true. Um, but uh, yeah. So before we actually move on to the nominees, yeah. thank you again for donating and for subscribing and for your commitment to quality journalism. It is much appreciated. You're very welcome. So let's get down to the moment we've all been waiting for. Our first nominee for Avocado of the Year slash Golden Avocado is the Cheesecake Factory. Cheesecake Factory noted restaurant nationwide chain. <laughs> That's an incredible Yelp review, Liam. <laughs> Cheesecake Factory decides right at the beginning of the pandemic striking in March that they were going to go on a rent strike. Told their landlords, no, we're not paying rent, can't do it because of the pandemic. And Cheesecake Factory first out of the box on the rent strike. Avocado of the Year nominee number one. Vanguard of the rent revolution the Cheesecake Factory. Yes. Let, let's go to avocado number two. Nominee number two, a Michelin-starred restaurant in San Francisco that during outdoor dining attempts amidst the pandemic put up plastic igloos around their tables as an effort to keep homeless residents away from their diners. This was the one that I was rooting for and that I thought would win. There is something apocalyptic and Orwellian Yes. About homeless igloos, yes. San Francisco. So homeless igloos still, still a possibility. Still in the running. Still, still in the running. running. <laughs> yes. I'll, All right. I'll take over for these last two. Nominee number three: Buffy Wicks and Baby. So Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, Democrat from the East Bay here in California, came to lend her support for a bill that would basically force cities to allow duplexes in single-family-only neighborhoods across California. She did so very late at night in the middle of a pandemic with a bunch of legislators surrounding her and her newborn baby, just a few weeks old baby, to testify in support of the bill. The bill passed, but passed so late in the evening that it could not make it to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk to become law. Avocado number three. Did I do that yes. justice? Uh, pretty much. She was forced to come to the Capitol because was not allowed to remote vote. Hence the forcing of the dramatic floor speech with her baby in tow. And then avocado number four, homeless Jesus statue. So this is a suburb in Cleveland, not too far from where you are, Stuart, where a neighbor spotted 
what she thought was a person experiencing homelessness under a blanket on a park bench called local law enforcement. A cop showed up, and it turned out it was a statue of Jesus. Ah, Mm -hmm. the the old switcheroo. Stuart, do you have a favorite among these four? I do have a favorite. My favorite, like yours, was the anti-homelessness igloos. thought that was just Mm. very, um, I don't know, very apt today. I just, you know, we've got to keep them outside. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I, I guess we're, are we ready to announce here, Liam? I think we're ready to announce. Stuart, are you, are you ready for this? Probably, I'm sure, is the biggest moment of your life. Up to this point, yes. Up to this point, right, okay. That's right, still a long life left to live, but up to this point. Okay, so Stuart, take it away. Take it away. Well, the avocado of the year goes to Buffy Wicks and her baby. Buffy Wicks, kind of the Meryl Streep of golden avocados here. Yes, indeed. Uh, in fact, last year, uh, our avocado of the year slash gold avocado was in San Diego, where a church was unable to build affordable housing in their parking lot because of city parking restrictions that required enough spaces based on square footage of pew. That was in the church. This was our winner last year. And in fact, Assemblywoman Wicks wrote a bill to get rid of that. And that's one of the ones that actually ended up passing. And so year after year, Buffy Wicks is overrun an abundance of avocados. Well, thank you so much, Stuart, for donating and subscribing and supporting good journalism and for coming on the podcast to announce the winner. We appreciate it. Thank you too for making good journalism and uh, best of luck to you, Matt, at your next endeavor. Thank you. And thank you for not wishing Liam any good luck too. That's probably the, <laughs> that's, the, that's the best gift you could give me. This is going to go into the dissertation, isn't it, Stuart? This part. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Stuart, thanks again. We really appreciate it and thanks for sticking with us. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Have a good day. And now we're here with our Avocado of the Year award winner, Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks. Assemblywoman Tell us, this has to be the greatest honor you've ever received in your life, correct? <laughs> it's, it's truly a, an honor of a lifetime. <laughs> I mean, it was really an illustrious group of competitors here. You know, the Cheesecake Factory Strike, the anti-homeless igloos. I for sure thought anti-homeless igloos was going to win. That's what I thought, too. But then, and then how do you, like, disregard the homeless Jesus statute, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Just as a follow-up here, how is your daughter Ellie doing? She was great at four o'clock this morning when she decided to be awake for like an hour and a half. Nice. <laughs> so, yes. She was worried about great. the housing vote, the upcoming she was, housing yeah, vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. She's a little annoyed we didn't do more in housing last year. You know, but at least <laughs> I got the Avocado of the Year Award. So there's something to be proud of. So what message do you, would you hope to impart now that you're going on a year tour, I imagine, to, to spread the gospel <laughs> of the avocado? As you do this, what message do you hope to impart to legions of those who will be listening to you now that you have this imprimatur, if you will? Um, <laughs> yeah, give, give well, a full acceptance speech, actually. And exactly. I, should, I should cue up some orchestra music here. <laughs> So just know that we have a lot of other awards to get to. Um, okay, okay, so great. Make it concise. Are you gonna give, me, give me my 30 seconds and then yank me off the stage when I yes. keep like rambling on and on and on about SB50. Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> exactly. And be sure to thank your agent. <laughs> totally, totally. Don't forget your mother. Uh, no, I think my message is that I will show up for housing votes. I mean, I will like put my daughter in the car and drive 80 miles and like get there and I will show up. So... 
I appreciate the uh, the opportunity here, guys. As a longtime fan of the podcast, it really is a dream come true. Wow. So the bill that you brought Elian to the floor to vote on did pass the assembly, but did not make it to the governor's desk because um, it was passed so late in the evening. Is it going to pass this year? It's coming back in pretty much the same form. I hope so. I mean, as I said on the floor in a pretty uh, exhausted speech that was <laughs> ironically probably like one of the worst speeches I've ever given on the floor. You know, it's a pretty simple bill. The ability to have duplexes on single family lots feels pretty straightforward. And I think guards against some of the concerns that folks have in the opposition around like having skyscrapers and single family zoned communities. And, you know, I think it's a very simple way to create density, as I mentioned, and one that makes sense to me and hopefully it will pass. And I will obviously be supporting it and I will do anything I can to help Senator Tony Atkins to get it over the finish line. I have one more thing for you, Assemblywoman. You know, last year's Avocado of the Year was about parking and pews in church areas. Wow. Which, uh, which you addressed in a, in a bill to make it easier now for churches to build affordable housing and not have to worry about parking requirements based on their pew space. This year, you physically won the Avocado of the Year. And so <laughs> what could possibly happen next year to continue your streak? Well, we could actually pass some housing production bills. Let's go for that. <laughs> Buffy, did do you anything else that you want to make sure that you, you impart with this honor? I don't think so, but I, I appreciate the honor, you guys. I'll remember this fondly in the trajectory of my life achievements. Ellie can put it on her college applications. <laughs> That's too. right. So I'm, I, but her you're first already award. thinking about that. Her first yeah. award. Yeah, yes. exactly. Poor, poor Ellie. I know she's, she's already gotten like way too much press for her small age. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Assemblywoman. We appreciate it. Congratulations. All right. Thanks, guys. So now let's get to our interview with Jason Elliott, the point person on housing and homelessness for the Newsom administration. Set us up here. What should we know about Jason's job? So came in at the beginning, been with the, the governor his entire couple of years in office, and in fact worked for the governor when Gavin was in San Francisco as mayor there, and so a long time connection as well. And again, there's been a lot of kind of change over in uh, housing advisors to the governor, new HCD director, new director of an agency mm-hmm. above HCD, et cetera. But Jason's sort of been there since day one as the guy in what they call the horseshoe, the governor's inner sanctum, inner chambers, directing <laughs> policy. Yes. And I think there's a lot of people doing housing policy work in the administration, obviously, and a lot of senior officials doing housing policy work. But I think what's unique about Jason's role is he kind of touches everything. He's in renter protections, he's in homelessness, he's in housing production, and he's often negotiating with legislators as well. So yep. that's why he really is a, a big get for us and someone I've been hoping to have on the podcast for quite some time. And let's get right to it. We are here with Jason Elliott. He is senior counselor to Governor Gavin Newsom and oversees many of the housing issues in the Newsom administration. Jason, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you both very much for inviting me to join today. This is very exciting for us. Yes. And it is likewise exciting for me, Liam. (laughs) (laughs) For the record, we've been trying to get Jason on for a little while here, so we're excited to have him. Between the pandemic and a new baby, I've been busy and unavailable, but I'm here now and eager to chat with you. So let's start with homelessness. 
Jason, I know a lot of your work since the pandemic began has been on the governor's uh, Project Room Key and Project Home Key, first temporary housing for those who are homeless in the state, and then also converting some of those motel properties into permanent housing. Tell us how that process has been going. I can talk all about how Project Room Key and and Home Key have gone. I think to set the stage just a little bit, though, and maybe your listeners are familiar with this, so with apologies for the retread, in February of 2020, the governor gave his annual State of the State speech. And in breaking with tradition, the governor focused the entirety of the speech on homelessness. And I mention that only to say that February 2020, while only 10 months ago, feels like an eternity ago with everything that's happened in the world since then. But I mention it because homelessness was top of the agenda even before the pandemic. I may, throughout this conversation that we're having here, refer back to what we wanted to do in February. And the reason that that I say that is because a lot of the solutions that we've pursued during COVID are similar, if not the same, to what we kind of wanted to do before the pandemic became the all-encompassing thing that it is today. So in a specific example, Liam, you asked about converting motels. You know, the governor in the January budget that we put out at the beginning of this year, but also in that state of the state in February, made it pretty clear that he wanted to pursue a strategy of adaptive reuse of existing buildings. In layman's terms, buying hotels, motels, and other kinds of vacant buildings and trying to create homeless housing as quickly as possible, much more quickly than through a traditional model and at a lower cost per unit or per door. So this has been something that we've wanted to pursue for quite a while. Obviously, the pandemic then upended everybody's plans. Don't need to say more on that. In March, when really we started to understand the magnitude of this challenge and crisis, We got together with a number of experts around our administration, and we brought in some outside academics and experts, including folks from HUD, uh, Dr. Margo Cashel from UCSF, who I'm I'm sure you're familiar with, and a number of other people from local government, and said, okay, we've got a serious situation on our hands. And without being hyperbolic, we have a life and death situation on our hands. We have 108,000 unsheltered people experiencing homelessness in California. And if the modeling is to be believed, and again, what we knew in March is very different than what we know today about how the disease spreads Mm -hmm. and and all that. But what we knew in March was we were modeling an attack rate of over 50%. We were modeling the spread of this virus without any kind of curve crushing interventions like stay at home orders or masks. Then within that rate of who was going to potentially get sick, we have to look at the homeless population and acknowledge that the underlying health conditions, the exposure to the elements are so catastrophic that we were potentially looking towards tens of thousands of homeless individuals losing their lives as a consequence of COVID. So that was the challenge we faced then. We obviously know a lot more about the disease now than we did in March, but nevertheless, you work with the best information you have available. So what we sort of put together was this thing, which is now called Project Roomkey. And Project Roomkey at its most foundational is a shift away from, and excuse the sort of wonky terms, a shift away from congregate shelter into non-congregate shelter. Congregate shelter is what most people think of as like a homeless shelter. So not like a bunch of beds in like a convention center, but actually individual rooms or semi-private rooms for, for folks. Yeah, that, and that's non-congregate shelter are the private or semi-private rooms. And really, it's about individual bathrooms and those sorts of things. Because for obvious reasons, congregate shelter with COVID spreading, we're going to lead to some very catastrophic public health consequences 
for homeless individuals. So non-congregate shelter really very quickly emerged as the model. I mean, we can look backwards and say, well, of course, that's so obvious. But at the time, nothing about how we were going to respond to COVID right. was obvious. Right. So as we, as we landed on non-congregate shelter as the appropriate medical path here, then the question became, okay, well, how are you going to do that? And you need to do it basically now. Right. So you don't have time to build a bunch of tiny homes or go build a bunch of units. You need to work with what you have. And that really led us to the hotel and motel leasing program and trailers, purchasing of trailers, which those two things together, the leasing of the motels and the buying of the trailers, that's what became known as Project Roomkey. And so it really was sort of just moving through the logic step by step. COVID is an airborne viral pandemic. So we can't put a bunch of people in the same place. So we need to think about non-congregate shelter. We have a whole bunch of hotels and motels that are vacant right now because folks aren't traveling for business or for pleasure. And then in addition to that, there were well over a thousand RVs, recreational vehicles available for purchase immediately inside the state of California. So we acted quickly and fast forward to where we are now. And Project Roomkey has provided safe shelter to over 23,000 individuals experiencing homelessness in California just since we launched it in April. It's 23,000 individuals. Just to give a sense of magnitude for folks who are listening today who maybe don't follow this issue so closely, based on best available data we have, on average, forget the pandemic, on average, California normally shelters about 30,700 people on any given night. We've added 15, 16,000 additional rooms, additional slots. That's more than half of California's existing shelter capacity. We've just we've just added that somewhat overnight. Yeah. We're really proud of, of how quickly this was implemented. And I should just say, because it's really important, the local governments are the ones who are really implementing Project Roomkey. And the same for Homekey, which I imagine we'll talk about later in the conversation. But Project Roomkey is deeply a state and local partnership. And I know we talk a lot about localism and working closely with our local partners. And it's certainly true in a number of respects, but maybe no more true than on Project Roomkey, where really it is the local service providers that are finding those clients, bringing the hotels online, moving those clients into the hotels and helping keep those people safe. So real kudos to our local partners. 55 counties and three tribes all across the state have participated in some way, shape or form in Project Roomkey. So really proud of how this has gone. On that note, so you guys were fairly successful so far in preventing a major outbreak at homeless shelters, although there's been a couple outbreaks recently, but nothing to the extent mm -hmm. of, let's say, what we saw in state prisons, right? Mm -hmm. Or what we feared at the beginning either, which I think was a, certainly a legitimate fear of, uh, that this was going to happen. So Exactly. So right now there are about 14,000 Californians who are in these room key motels. Many of these motels are looking at expiring leases. Counties are saying, hey, you know, we don't know how much longer we can afford this. What should Californians expect in terms of the number of those currently staying in those motels that end up in permanent stable housing? Great question. And it's been one of our opportunities and fears since the beginning of the pandemic is what are we going to do once we're able to move people inside to protect them from the pandemic? How do we build on that to try to create some stable housing? So as you said, there are right now about 14,000 people as of last night that were staying in hotel and motel rooms around the state. There's kind of two groups of people that are in 
these project room key hotels. The first group are people who are extremely sensitive to really bad consequences from getting COVID. So people with lung cancer, people who are over 65, people with underlying health conditions. And really, we're using Project Room Key to protect them from getting coronavirus in the first place. The second population that has benefited from Project Room Key are individuals experiencing homelessness who have actually contracted the coronavirus, be that in a shelter, in an encampment, or wherever that person may be living. It's an interesting thing to think about. If a person experiencing homelessness contracts the coronavirus, doesn't need to be in an ICU, where exactly do we ask that individual to quarantine himself or herself? to not infect other members of the community. It's sort of a question that answers itself. We needed to provide that capacity. So we have two populations in Project Room Key. As I said, the first, which are medically vulnerable, we call those our long-term stayers because there's no time at which they won't be over 65, right? So that you need to continue to protect that population. But then for the folks who are otherwise not medically vulnerable but have contracted coronavirus, they're really doing these 14-day recuperative stays. And then we're trying as best we can to move those clients on to more permanent or stable housing, but we don't always succeed. And, you know, I think homelessness is a multi-dimensional challenge for every individual. And, and oftentimes there are just compelling factors that pull people back to the streets, pull people back to an encampment community where they feel safe. And we really need to break those habits and, and move people into more safe and stable situations. Do you um, know how successful you have been? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is we need better data on this and our department, particularly the Department of Social Services, is working right now to collect that information and to be able to do a deeper analysis. But with what we have, which is really some surveys of counties of some of our larger county partners, we think that at least 56% of clients that have been in Project Roomkey have exited to housing or to some other form of shelter. So just a, a moment on the data, really the people who are leaving Project Room Key at this point are mostly those short-term 14-day stayers. They're not the senior citizens and the folks with underlying health conditions because those individuals are more than likely still in Project Room Key hotels. So for the relatively young, relatively healthy homeless individuals, those are the ones that have been leaving Project Room Key at measurable numbers. And we think that at least 56% of them have found their way to either permanent supportive housing or some other medically enhanced housing placement or some other shelter placement. And then everyone else, we've either not been able to identify where they went or we know that they return to street homelessness. So the perfect state here is 100% of people who come into Project Room Key in permanent housing. That's the gold standard. And I think we're all working as hard as we can, both at the state and with our local partners, because as I said, the locals are really the ones that are on the front lines here. We're working as hard as we can to get as close as we can to 100% success. But are we going to achieve 100%? I really hope so. But if we don't, we're going to try to get as close as we can. Jason, I think maybe this is a good chance for us to transition a little bit to HomeKey, yeah. which is the more permanent housing solution that sure. comes from also from buying up some of these motels and hotel rooms, again, permanently, so that this would, again, be available for folks even after the pandemic who are in need mm -hmm. of uh, housing. What was interesting to me about this, this is, really seemed like, a, for be very frank, a big challenge because of the funding restrictions. And just as a brief aside, you know, this is money coming from the federal government as part of the coronavirus relief had to be spent by the mm -hmm. end of this year. And so, you know, Matt uh, did a really good just talking about what is it over 6,000 units um, in contract to be done so basically actually doing it you know within six months essentially being able to buy all of these hotels I know that many were still kind of in contract and not actually finalized mm -hmm. should we expect by the end of the month like to have 6,100 more units to this program than we did at the beginning of the year short answer yes we do it's been an unprecedented effort I think as far as we can tell 
the largest single expansion of housing for the homeless in California history. And it's happened in just a matter of months. I think we launched HomeKey formally in July or August, maybe July. So, you know, we're talking about six months. When it's all said and done, there will be 94 projects in the portfolio owned and operated by local governments and their local community-based partners. Over 6,000 units, we're tracking to about 6,068 units total across the portfolio. Happy and excited to say that of those 94 projects, all 94 have their agreements with HCD, um, the Housing and Community Development Department. All 94 have executed agreements. All 94 have received their funding. So as far as the state's commitment is concerned, we are really pleased with how our local partners have worked quickly. Sorry, Jason, real quickly. How many Mm -hmm. have closed escrow? So uh, 78 of 94 have closed escrow as of today. There you go. And and we're confident in the remaining handful also closing escrow. And I think the really important thing there is that, as I think you, you mentioned, Liam, this is using federal funds and those federal funds have very hard and fast deadlines on them around when the costs have to be incurred, which in this case means out of escrow. And for anyone who's ever bought a home, that escrow process can be quite long. But we're confident that by the December 30th deadline, if not several days before that deadline, we will see all 94 projects uh, close escrow and be in public ownership for the benefit of people experiencing homelessness. So this has been an effort that I've been in government 10, 15 years, and I've never seen anything like this before. And I, I think it's just a huge testament to the work of team at HCD, team at the Homeless Coordinating and Financing Council, the Department of Social Services, the Department of General Services. This is really a bunch of government agencies coming together and doing it right. And, you know, I think at a time when maybe nationally confidence in government is perhaps as low as it's ever been, <laughs> I just want people to know this story about HomeKey because it's a bunch of bureaucrats who you'll never know their names doing the right thing for the right reasons. And it just makes me really proud of this state and the values this state has that governor, you know, prioritized spending $750 million of federal stimulus money to create housing to protect the most vulnerable from this pandemic. I just, I think it's a real testament to what we can do uh, when we don't lean on excuses and work to get things done. So Liam referenced that story that I wrote a couple weeks back on HomeKey. And you're right. The consensus among the homelessness researchers and service providers that I talked with was this is pretty remarkable that the state and local governments and nonprofits have been able to move this quickly if all of these units are actually acquired, which it looks like they're on track to be. You referenced Dr. Margot Cushell at UCSF, and she said something that kind of stuck with me, which was 6,100, and I'm paraphrasing, 6,100 mm-hmm. units is something to be proud of, but mm-hmm. we are unlikely to see a visible reduction in homelessness because of home key. Do you Mm -hmm. agree with that? First of all, I would never feign to disagree with Dr. Cashel, first (laughs) of all. Um, But I think second of all, look, I understand where she's coming from, right? As I mentioned, we have 108,000 unsheltered people that were homeless before the pandemic. Is 6,000 units going to solve homelessness across the state? Were we able to solve homelessness in six months during a pandemic? No, we weren't. And I think it's only fair when stakeholders or local elected officials or constituents demand we do more on homelessness. I think that's totally fair. And, you know, I'll just say that Home Key and Room Key, which we've now discussed at some length, really were both medical missions. The pace with which we moved were really inspired by what at the time 
was potentially going to be catastrophic for the homeless population in California. It certainly has been catastrophic for so many thousands and tens of thousands of Californians who have lost loved ones, but even more so for homeless individuals who have those underlying health conditions and are exposed to the elements and so forth. So really, this was motivated by a, a sort of medical necessity. And in doing that, we were able to, I think, set some new precedent nationally for how to address homelessness, not only in the pandemic times, but perhaps more long-term. So when Margot, when Dr. Cashel says that we may not see it, I think that's true. Unless you are one of those individuals who's moving into a home key unit, or unless you're the sister, I was talking to someone whose sister has been homeless for a long time and her sister is moving into a unit. To that sister of the homeless person, you can see the difference, right? So I think it's, it's a question yeah. of really where, what your vantage point is. If you live in a small town and you know the one guy who's homeless who hangs out in front of the general store downtown and he's been there for five years, and now that guy, we were able to move him into home key, we've just reduced the population of homelessness in that town from one to zero, right? That's a functional end to homelessness for that community. That matters for that community. So I think it's really a question of where you stand. And, you know, 6,000 folks through the permanent housing exits, 23,000 folks through this non-congregate shelter. You know, I think that's really something to be proud of. Are we done? Did we hit the, the finish line and the checkered flag dropped? Of course not. And, uh, you know, certainly we can talk about the eviction challenges that we may be facing and how that would exacerbate the problems that we have now. So certainly more to be done. And when it comes to homelessness, I think those of us who work in this space know that the best you can do is the best you can do. And we really want to solve homelessness. We really want to solve homelessness and we want to end homelessness. And in the meantime, in the middle of a global pandemic, we're going to do as much as we can considering the limited means that we have at our disposal. So I kind of have one more question that's close to this issue, you know, and you referenced earlier on the governor's promises on homelessness in February and then also during the budget conversation back in January 2020, he talked about a plan to try to make it easier to finance homeless housing as sort of traditionally been done, right? New build, permanent supportive housing, also just low income, affordable housing in general. And he sort of gave this very funny quote where he lifted the alphabet soup of agencies involved in, in financing uh, affordable housing in California and said that he was one of six people who know what they all meant. And three of the others <laughs> are on this call, right? Or on this, or in this interview. Um, <laughs> but nothing really happened with that this year. And obviously no one expected mm -hmm. a pandemic to happen, but this is still a problem, right? Not just for building homeless sure, housing, sure, sure. but for building low-income housing writ large. What is the administration going to do now a year on from its initial promise at making it more affordable to build low-income housing such that we can build more of it as a state? So I sort of agree and disagree with parts of your question, Liam. I think certainly not everything we set out to do this year we were able to accomplish because for reasons that I hope people understand, we had to turn our attention to other places uh, to protect health and public safety. But that said, I do think quite a bit was done and, and want to give credit to the legislature and some of the legislative leaders who, despite the pandemic, stayed really focused on this issue. So I'll just give you a couple of examples of what I, I mean. You talked about the alphabet soup of housing finance agencies, and you know certainly there was a recent audit which pointed out deficiencies in communication between all of those various right. alphabet soup agencies. Multiple applications um, in, for developers to build things all right. going to the state, but yes, keep going. And I read some really good reporting in the LA Times a while ago about how all of those overlapping processes add cost to housing, which is what, at the end of the day, we really care about, right, is how Indeed. much this housing yes. costs. Yes. Mm -hmm. So whoever the uh, author of that article was, please um, give him or her my congratulations on good reporting there. Nevertheless, yeah. despite the challenge of the pandemic, 
there are a few things that the state has done and is in the process of doing that are going to make a difference in this space. Uh, the first is that the legislature put together and the governor signed a bill called AB 434, which I'll spare your listeners the detail. If you know 434, then you already know what I'm going to say. If you don't know 434, it's basically the first and very important steps towards fixing some of these overlapping and disconnected funding programs in the state. It's not everything that needs to be done, but it's certainly really good first steps. And that bill was signed just a couple months ago, and we're going to start working on implementation of that in very short order. In fact, some of the planning has already started. I would also say that as part of the alphabet soup, you've got the various tax credit and bond programs. You've got programs that the administration administers through our departments. And there has been a really productive conversation, I think, between all of the various entities there, some of which are other constitutional offices, to start aligning some of the guidelines about how the TCAC, the SIDLAC, HFA, HCD, and how all of these programs interact with each other. Uh, This is going to take a number of years of sustained effort and commitment to really continue to streamline these things, but we've been encouraged about progress that's been made and will be made. Hopefully there continue to be more discussions, public discussions on the SIDLAC regulations that will be coming in the next few weeks and months. But progress has been made there. Why does it take a couple of years? I mean, yeah. people have known, I mean, you've known about these problems for a long time. The audit sure. just, just came out in this fall, as the reporting that we did in the spring. I mean, these, these are not new things. I mean, why does it take a couple sure. of years to say maybe like every other state or every other large state, we need one constitutional officer, just the governor in charge of affordable mm-hmm. housing finance or mm-hmm. one housing agency giving out the money instead of five? You know, why does it take a few years to figure that out? The governor is present working on his budget proposal, which he will make public in early January. And so I, I certainly don't want to get ahead of, any, ahead of any decisions that he's contemplating right now in terms of what we do next year. But I'll, I'll say it's easier said than done. And I'm not here to make excuses, certainly, but I think you have really committed leadership. This governor, this treasurer, this controller, the department heads that work for this governor really are all aligning towards trying to implement some of those reforms that you just mentioned. So again, I'm not here to make excuses, but these things are hard. And you're looking at years, if not decades, of patterns and practices happening in a certain way. And changing those assumptions and changing those behaviors takes a little bit longer. But I'll I'll point back to AB 434, which really does begin that in a very concrete and tangible way. And as I said, we were very happy to sign that bill. The governor was very happy to sign that bill, not just a few months ago, and thank the leadership in the assembly for moving that forward to us. You know, I think on other points that you've mentioned, you know, in terms of CEQA streamlining, we said in the state of the state that the governor wanted to see uh, CEQA exemptions for all new homeless housing and shelter facilities around the state. While clearly that's not something that we were able to sign into law this year statewide and permanently, it is something that we were able to sign into law relative to the home key program. And again, deep thanks to the legislature for working with us on that issue. So home key, these 6,000 units or so that we talked about earlier, all benefit from various streamlinings, including CEQA, including Article 34, uh, including some local zoning issues. So those streamlinings, we think were really critical to making this program work on such an accelerated timetable. That's a variant of what the governor had called for in his state of the state. So certainly that's something we're going to continue to press forward for. And again, want to appreciate our partners in the legislature who have attempted this before, and we hope will be partners to us in this moving forward. And then, you know, just final point I wanted to make, Liam, in in terms of the pandemic, you know, potentially derailing a whole bunch of plans. There was $500 million that the governor prioritized for low-income housing tax credits. This is one of 
the biggest, if perhaps most misunderstood or unknown ways that the state funds affordable housing. And even despite the pandemic, the governor was able to maintain that proposal for $500 million in state tax credits. And we were happy that the legislature also agreed to prioritize that. And that's in place right now. So even through this pandemic, the state has continued to fund affordable housing creation at levels that were unthinkable just five years ago. So stuff is still happening to the order of magnitude that we wanted pre-pandemic, no. But stuff is still certainly happening. For our listeners, Jason referenced Article 34. That's a part of the state constitution that had some restrictions on building a public housing. And there were some waivers related to those rules as it relates to home keep. Isn't it prerequisite for being a Gimme Shelter listener that you deeply study no, Article, Article 34? 34. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, it is, Jason. Yes. Okay. So I want to transition to evictions. So as you know, the statewide eviction moratorium is scheduled to end at the end of January There are quite literally millions of California renters who are afraid that they may be evicted come February 1st. Mm -hmm. Um, On the flip side, there are lots of small landlords who are struggling to make their mortgage payments because they haven't been able to get rent and haven't been able to evict tenants in the meantime. When should the eviction moratorium expire? When's the right time? That's a great question, and I don't have an answer because I can't see the future. But what I will say is that AB 3088, which is the law that is currently in place in California, has had its intended effect. So when we were facing potentially an eviction crisis, uh, the first round of this eviction crisis was potentially going to hit California in September because there were some rules that the Judicial Council had put in place, the court system had put in place that were going to expire. So the the legislature, uh, thanks to the leadership of a whole number of our partners, Senators Caballero and Bradford, and at the time, Assemblywoman Lamone, who is now, of course, in the Senate, and Mr. Chu as well, of course, in the Assembly, and leadership on both sides, we all got together, we talked to various stakeholders, and we said something has to be done. And everyone agreed something had to be done. Fast forward to AB 3088. And let me focus on one part of 3088, which is really important. And this is really my sort of public service announcement. So I'm speaking maybe less to the housing aficionados and more to regular everyday Californians who are worried about this issue. If you are a renter and you have been impacted economically by the pandemic, you have rights. And in order to gain those rights, in order to benefit from those rights, you have to take two very simple steps. The first is you have to sign a declaration and give it to your landlord that you have, in fact, been impacted economically by the pandemic. Then the second step you have to take is paying 25% or more of your rent for the months of September, October, November, December, and January, the five months that we're currently in the middle of. If you do those two things, you as a tenant, you're still going to owe all the rent that you owe. But owing that rent cannot be the basis of an eviction for you at any point in the future. So eviction is taken off the table for you as a renter. If you, in fact, meet those two tests I just mentioned, which is the pandemic has impacted you economically and you make those partial payments. The reason for the partial payments, and you alluded to it in the question, is that in many cases, not all cases, in many cases, that landlord is a small property owner, maybe owns one or two or three units. Maybe that's their retirement. Maybe they're living off of the income from that unit. And those folks can be low income and those folks can be struggling as well. And they're also facing pressure from their banks in a lot of cases to make mortgage payments or to make property tax payments or to pay the utility bill or whatever it may be. So cash flow to those landlords, even at a minimal level of 25% helps make sure that everyone stays stable. So everything I've just described expires on February 1st. 
And I think that's the premise of your question, which is, what are we going to do after February 1st? And I will say I spend more time trying to answer that question these days than I spend time doing anything else. And I'm encouraged that everyone I talk to agrees that the pandemic hasn't subsided, unfortunately. The public health reasons that we needed an eviction moratorium in the first place are still present, if not, in fact, more acute than they were in the fall, frankly. I think it's too early in the discussions for me to predict the future because we're really trying to hear from everybody, from renter and tenant advocates, from small property owners, from the financial sector, and really try to land on the right solution, the right policy solution that's equitable and protects people. I think the big thing that's missing, we can all agree on the scope of the problem, we can all agree on what should be done, but the big thing that's missing is federal financial support to renters and distressed property owners. It has been a component of every relief bill that Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump have shut down for the last number of years. Speaker Pelosi has prioritized this in everything she's put forward. Senate Democrats have prioritized this in everything they've put forward. Governors, red and blue, have put this forward as something necessary. But despite all that, we don't have any commitment of federal financial support for renters and property owners. That is necessary. What level of federal financial support are you looking for? What's the number when the press release comes out that I go, oh, this is what Jason wanted. They're going to get what they want here. Sure. So, uh, and I don't mean this to be flip, Matt, but the answer is something greater than zero, which is where we are now. You know, I, th- I think it, you, you can you can look at the fed you can look at the Federal Reserve study that came out recently that estimated that yeah. renters in California owe one point seven billion dollars in right. back rent. I've heard from a lot of folks, both on the landlord side and the tenant advocacy side, that that number may be low. How low is it? I don't know the answer to that question. But one way or another, it starts to give you a sense of the order of magnitude of the kind of investment that would be necessary to help clear these rental arrears, this back rent, help property owners get out from under the threat of foreclosure from their banks or being in default because of some bills they owed for a home repair or whatever it may be. So it starts to give you a sense of the order of magnitude. If it's X billion, Are we going to turn around and say, that's not enough. It needs to be 2x billion. No, I mean, I think at this point, really, we're continuing our direct advocacy to both President-elect Biden and to Speaker Pelosi about how important any federal stimulus would be in this space. I'm simply reporting what I see on Twitter, so I'm not sharing any news that is not otherwise publicly available. But $25 billion is now being considered national for this. Certainly, that would go a long way towards solving our problem. And, you know, obviously that's, that ain't done. That takes a lot more steps in Washington. We're certainly continuing our direct advocacy and the governor is continuing his personal and direct advocacy on how important this issue is to California. So putting aside the federal issue, and obviously I understand that makes everyone's life a lot easier and is, and is important if that were to come through, but why not do what some mm-hmm. advocates have asked since the beginning, since March, forgive mm-hmm. or partially forgive some renter or mortgage debt? Why is that not something that has been on the table at this point. It's, again, a question of where you stand on this issue. And forgiving rental debt, if you will, presents some legal challenges. But setting those aside, and while many renters are certainly under great stress because of jobs they've lost because of stay-at-home orders or because a family member or they have gotten sick and there's great stress on the low-income renter side, those debts are owed to someone. And often, I'd say in a number of cases, the someone to whom that debt is owed is also a landlord who is struggling to make the monthly bills. That landlord may also have lost his or her job. That landlord is also trying to protect 
his or her property from being foreclosed upon. So it's not as simple as that. Certainly sympathetic to where the advocates on behalf of renters are coming from on this question and uh, eager sure, and to continue. I, and I asked about mortgages too, so I included that as part of the part of the question. I mean, you could, you know, that helps sure. the landlord, does it not? Um, if you were to do both, it does. And uh, we run into some pretty significant federal preemption issues around how to regulate the banks. And so we try with our partners in the legislature and our partners in the financial industry to figure out what is possible to do. But what we want to do and what we're able to do are often not the same thing. And, and we try to get as close as we can to solving this problem for as many people as we can. And, you know, just to get back to the question of how big is the problem, there are various studies that have been published throughout the course of the pandemic. I think the biggest number I've seen came from the Aspen Institute that uh, estimated that up to 5.4 million individuals in California alone would potentially face some sort of rent owed, which could potentially lead to an eviction. And that number, that 5.4 million number, really was in part what motivated us towards the solution that eventually became AB 3088, which is how many evictions can we take off the table by having this sort of process where the, the rental debt converts to consumer debt. And I know I'm way down the rabbit hole here, but basically this describes what I was talking about earlier, which is if you sign that declaration and give it to your landlord and you make those partial payments, that debt that you owe to your landlord converts from a rental debt to a consumer debt. And therefore it can't be the subject of an eviction. With that protection now in place, that 5.4 million number is cut way down. I don't know what it's cut down to because I haven't seen subsequent research from, from Aspen Institute, but it's cut way down. Now, they still may owe that debt, and that can still be very problematic for low-income people, but at least they're not also facing eviction at the same time. Just real quickly here, I realize that there's a lot of variables in the future that you, know, you can't foresee, including the amount of federal funding you may receive. But the future ain't so far off now, right? We're mm -hmm. like a month and a half away from the moratorium expiring. If I'm a renter that hasn't been able to come up with that 25% heading into February 1st, should mm -hmm. I expect the moratorium to be expended? Because I kind of have to start making plans now, right? Matt, I would say two things on that. If you're a low-income renter that has not been able to make that 25% payment, check with your local government or your local service providers because in, in a number of cases, local governments are using some of their direct federal stimulus money to help renters pay that 25%. So the first thing I would say is check that out and there may be an opportunity for you. There have been also a number of nonprofits and philanthropies that have stepped in to help in this space. Yeah. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say, you know, and I want to be really careful here because if you're a renter, you're a mother and a father and you're worried about keeping your family safe after February 1st, can you expect the moratorium to be continued? I think everyone agrees that some extension of protections is necessary, but providing sort of false hope or assurity is not responsible, just as would be saying, no, we're of course not going to extend it. You know, that would also be similarly not fair. So I think what I would say to that family, to that person is we're going to do our damnedest to continue to protect you. And I know that the legislature shares that perspective, both in the Senate and the Assembly, as do a whole slew of local elected officials who have reached out to us on this issue. And I don't want to be flip with this answer because this is real people's lives and very yeah. serious public health. What I would say to the family is just know that a whole bunch of us in Sacramento are deeply committed to trying to solve on this issue. Just to be clear, just the administration supports extending the moratorium? The administration supports continuing to protect renters and low-income homeowners. Does that mean exactly 3088? Because then your follow-up question is going to be, well, how many months? That starts to get into where I think, you know, we really do need to have a conversation with our partners in the legislature and not declare an outcome. 
that actually is a nice transition in terms of declaring an outcome to a question I, I've wanted to ask for some time. So you may remember on the governor's campaign for office, he pledged to support the creation of three and a half million new homes in California by 2025. And putting aside, you know, that number, which again is five times what our annual housing production has been and what it is now. So putting aside whether that number in and of itself is ever a feasible goal or one that we should actually hold the governor accountable to hit that number. For me, mm -hmm. I've interpreted that as, you know, the governor should put forward a housing production plan that matches the scope of that ambition. Mm -hmm. I really don't think it's arguable that we haven't seen that from the governor in the past two years. And I'm... Mm -hmm. Wondering why not? Like, why have we not? This was a key promise, perhaps his biggest promise as it relates to housing on the campaign trail. Where is the big housing plan that we were promised? So I think that at the end of the day, all of the policies we put in place and the money we put into this space and all of those things are enabling factors. What we really need is developers to pull permits and cities to approve housing. Those are the things that really matter. And everything that we do on top of that to subsidize affordable housing, to hold cities accountable, is to try to get those two things to happen with greater frequency. I say all that because we are in the middle of a economic catastrophe brought on by a pandemic where housing building has really been impacted. And if we were to have that big agenda, Liam, that you've questioned where it is, I don't know that during this last six or eight months when the whole economy has been turned upside down, whether that would have actually happened. That notwithstanding, as I said earlier in the conversation, the governor is now in the final throes of putting together his proposal to the legislature for the 2021 budget. And I don't want to get ahead of any of the initiatives that he's going to lay out get ahead. in that budget. Get ahead. Get ahead. <laughs> I'm certain that you would appreciate that. But however, my boss, the governor, probably wouldn't. So I need to be accountable to him as well. Let me look backwards to look forwards. And, you know, I think one of the things that we did when we first came into office, and the story doesn't need to be repeated, but is we held Huntington Beach accountable for not being compliant with their obligations under AB 72 around their housing element. That in itself, holding Huntington Beach accountable, and thanks to Huntington Beach, they are now in fact in compliance with their obligations under AB 72. But it, it's more a symbol of how we think this problem needs to be addressed which is there are millions upon millions of units that are zoned and to some extent streamlined across the state right now under existing law. And far too often, probably in the majority of cases, I'd actually argue, that housing doesn't get built. And the question is why? Is the political will not there? Do we confront a tragedy of the commons problem where one city not permitting a four-unit building isn't going to tip the housing crisis? But if you do that enough times across enough cities, you're going to see that problem. And certainly the governor has been very aggressive about working with cities to get them to not only do the underlying zoning documents that they're legally obligated to do, but then actually move through the process and permit that housing. The same way that on homelessness, we don't buy the hotels for home key, the locals do. On housing, similar situation. We don't permit the housing the locals do. So what we can do is hold local governments accountable, help them, technical assistance, grants, guidance. When a city is on the precipice of making a decision that's not the right decision for housing, we can call them, write them a letter, help them get to the right decision. And we need to do that at scale. 
And let me push it on this a little bit. When I hear three and a half million homes in the campaign trail, I don't hear the solution being, we're just going to write a bunch of letters. I mean, like, that's not what I mm-hmm. thought when I heard three and a half million homes. And to your point about like, yeah, sure, this year in the pandemic and that distracted attention, that's certainly fair enough. But we didn't see the governor when he first walked into office follow through with, again, a plan that matches the extent of this ambition. You know, we didn't see it last year, you know, in the beginning of the year. And we can talk about SB 50 or any bill like mm-hmm. it where we haven't seen him mm-hmm. put in his own idea out that would sort of be this massive change in and how zoning and planning or production would work. And in fact, a bit lukewarm on those strategies when they were being talked about in the legislature. So again, kind of where is that big push and why hasn't it come? What's the holdup? I think if the point you're making, Liam, is that we as a state, the governor, the legislature, everybody needs to do more on housing, you're not going to find an argument from me on that. Obviously, we have not put in place the kinds of laws, reforms, accountability measures that have increased housing production year over year, because that's not a point we need to argue. You can just look at the housing starts data to see that that's true. So if the contention is that we need to do more, I don't think you're going to get an argument from the governor or certainly not from me. And frankly, I don't think you're going to get argument from those in the legislature who have been on the front lines of these battles long before we took office. But that's sort of the point is that these battles have been being waged since long before we took office. And I think what we're most interested in is not proposing something big and shiny that we can check a box and say we propose something. I think we're more interested in finding where all those units are in California. Where can they be built? What streamlinings are available to us? Where should we go further on streamlinings that need to be put in place or clarified so that we can really see those units sprout up out of the ground? And I guess it's a difference between is there one silver bullet to solve the housing production challenge that we face in California? Absolutely not. I don't think you would argue that. I certainly wouldn't argue that. So the question is, what is the suite of tools that we need to put in place and how shiny are they? And you know, I would argue that shininess is not a proxy for impact. And I think we have to really think about and work very closely with our stakeholders in the affordable housing development community, in the market rate housing development community, in the labor movement, in local government, in the environmental justice community and so forth, and really understand where they're coming from. Because I haven't heard, with the exception of certain NIMBY groups who are proud to be NIMBY, I haven't heard anyone say, we don't need more housing in California. So then the question is, if we all have agreement on the direction we want to go, but we all want to take different paths to get there, what's the most efficacious way to get from A to B? And I think that, you know, our perspective on this is first and foremost, local governments need to be held accountable to follow the laws that already exist, that are already on the books. We don't need to start from scratch on these things. That's not going to get us there on its own. We also have to continue to make investments, especially in affordable housing. Market rate housing, by and large, pays for itself, hence the fact that it's market rate. Affordable housing does not, almost by definition. So what subsidy are we able to provide for affordable housing? Because even if you can get through the zoning and NIMBY issues on affordable housing, you're still facing a shortfall on how much it costs to build. So two ways you can squeeze that. Of course, you can bring the cost down, which as your reporting has pointed out, Liam, can largely be accomplished in one way, um, reducing various state and local hurdles that projects have to jump through. So you can bring the cost down you can also subsidize. And that's really where we're looking at the billion dollars that the governor has put into affordable housing tax credits over the last two years and potentially other announcements that the governor will be making once he settles on his budget in a few weeks. So there's the financial side of how to build 
especially on the affordable. I, I think that some of our partners in the affordable housing advocacy space have identified a need of more than a million affordable units statewide. Even if we were to snap our fingers and make all of that immediately buildable with zoning, you'd still have the money problem on the affordable housing side. On the market rate side, it's more a question around political will and political will ultimately on housing manifests at city council meetings and at planning commission meetings and in building departments. And I think that's really where we need to be focused to try to solve on this problem. Is the shiny object you were referencing earlier, you know, the type of policy that maybe gets a lot of fanfare, but doesn't move the needle in the way that people think it would? I mean, are you alluding to SB 50, Jason? Oh, no, I'm not alluding to SB 50. And Senator Weiner has been long one of the leading thinkers on housing in California. So no, I'm not, I'm not referring to SB 50. I'm referring to a bunch of other ideas that I get pitched and we all get pitched on a regular basis. If we just did X, we would solve the housing crisis, right? And I think it's just this problem has calcified over decades and decades and decades. And in order to solve some of the fundamental issues while respecting local control, but also challenging local obstinance, that's much harder done than said. I just really butchered that turn of phrase. But nevertheless, yeah, it's if it's decades in the making, it's not going to be one bill in the solving. So we saw SB 50 go down about 17 different times. We saw Senator Atkins' housing package go up and then down. That's the best way mm-hmm. I can describe it. And then we saw Governor Newsom express regret that both of those two things happened, or disappointment's a better word. Mm-hmm. But what we didn't see was him out front on either Atkins' housing package or SB 50. Why was he more vocal in supporting those bills? Look, I know this is a question that In fact, the three of us have talked about on a number of occasions and plenty of reporting has been done on this. So I don't know that I have anything more to add other than to say the governor was supportive of all of those bills that you just mentioned and worked the legislative process in the way that he and the sponsors of those bills thought was most effective. You mentioned the pro tem, Tony Atkins, who is one of the most thoughtful voices on housing in California. Governor deeply appreciates pro tem Atkins taking the lead on the critical bills that she was working on last year. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in how she's approaching these complicated challenges. She's mentioned, and I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth, but she's mentioned that she wants to bring a number of those back. So, you know, certainly we will continue to engage in the legislative process in the ways that we and the legislative sponsors and leadership think are most effective and, and appropriate. All right, Liam, you want to move to the lightning round? Yeah, Jason, we got a lightning round. You ready for this? This is like, this is going to be the most fun part of this conversation. Yes. Bring it. So, yes, no answers or multiple choice, and we're going to try to keep you in bounds uh, with these answers. So, first question will be multiple choice, four choices. The biggest policy obstacle to building more housing in California is A, NIMBY local governments, B, cumbersome environmental regulations like CEQA, C, too much single-family zoning, or D, Prop 13 and bad incentives for cities to support new development. Pretty good <sighs> question, huh, Jason? Well, I mean, we this is that completely designed. That th- this is designed as a trap. So, so long as what? we all, so long as we all acknowledge that, then I will answer with sort of an, an amalgam of options A and B, which is to say, political will and incentives that align to turn that political will around. So I think A, and I'm kind of paraphrasing because I wasn't writing this down, was like NIMBY local governments. I mean, I think NIMBY and YIMBY have become sort of epithets that people throw at each other, right? But I would say that local governments not having the political incentives aligned to aggressively push for new housing, and that sort of 
dovetails into answer the end of answer D that you had given me. So I think, look, there are arguments to be made for all of those four answers, which is why I say it's a trap. There is no one answer there that is clearly not right. And arguments can be made for all those answers. And so I'll just say part A and part D. And it's really around aligning the political incentives and changing the conversation in California so that new housing, saying yes to new housing becomes the default unless there's a good reason not to build housing. Uh, which sometimes there is for environmental right. justice reasons or affordability yeah. reasons, but making the default yes and then asking the question, should this be built? So We'll accept that answer. We'll yeah. accept Thank you. That. I appreciate that. I'm afraid to know what the consequence is if I don't follow your rules. Like, am I throwing <laughs> a podcast jail or what happens? I- the, S- the SAT score just goes down slightly. Got it. So, okay. but, Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. You can answer true, mostly true, false, or mostly false. So there's baked okay. in nuance here. The pandemic-fueled rise in telecommuting has permanently dented demand to live in higher-density cities in California. I think that that's false. I think it's false for a, a few reasons. The first is that while we're still, to use the governor's metaphor, we're in the tunnel, we see the light at the end of that tunnel. And we are all eager, I am so eager to go and see my mother and have her interact with her granddaughter. I'm so eager to go to a concert. I'm so eager to just go walk to a coffee shop and sit there and read a book. And I think probably so many of us are in similarly situated position, which is a long way of saying that when life returns to whatever our new normal is, people are still going to want to be in cities for the reason that they wanted to be in cities in January of 2020. Fundamentally, our human nature to be connected, to experience new things hasn't changed. The second and perhaps more definitive thing that I would say about why I answered false to this question is that very fundamentally work from home is deeply inequitable. I am able to work from home. I am a professional with high-speed internet and several computers and an office and a boss that allows me to do this. Most people are not situated in the position that I am and I think you both are. So we have to be extremely sensitive to the fact, the reality that I'm living here as I sit here in my home office and talk to you on this Zoom is not the reality that so many people, including the grocery store clerk when I went to buy food earlier today, or the delivery person who brought us dinner last night is facing. And in those cases, living in the city versus the suburbs is not a question of convenience or preference. It's a question of affordability and access to the services that people need. You know, fundamentally, cities still provide those cultural hubs for people, especially in monolingual communities or immigrant communities, where clustering around community-based organizations is literally a matter of life and death. So I think the answer to that question is false. For some people, will it catalyze moves to the suburbs or beyond? Yeah, of course. But I think from a policy and development perspective, we're going to continue to need need to build housing everywhere. We need to build infill housing. Uh, We need to build affordable single-family homes that are adjacent to existing infrastructure. We have to continue to do all these things. It is not a paradigm shift in the way that I think many thought it would be in March or April. So requiring prevailing wage and a skilled and trained workforce, which is pushed for frequently by construction workers, unions, state building construction trades, which is a key housing politics player, Mm -hmm. requiring those things to build low-income housing meaningfully contributes to the cost of building that housing. That true, mostly true, false, or mostly false? So I think it's mostly false, and I'll say why I'm saying that. 
Your question was around low-income housing in California. Much low-income housing in California, not all, but much low-income housing in California is subsidized by various state or local sources. Many of those sources carry requirements for what is called prevailing wage already. So one can make the argument that prevailing wage is too expensive and we shouldn't pay those kinds of wages to build housing for low-income people using public sources. The governor doesn't believe that and I don't believe that. But implicit in your question is an argument by some that maybe that's It's true. I I think that when you look at the construction workforce in California, these are folks who also should be able to afford to live in the communities in which they work. And the same way that we don't want people commuting two or three hours to work on a food service line, we also don't want people commuting two or three hours to shoot nails into wood because you're going to experience the same climate impacts from those long commutes. You're going to experience the same kind of segregation if higher income people can live in one place and lower income people are forced to live in another place. Complete communities require completeness of access of people being able to live in those places. So, you know, I think it's really important that we see where we're at which is that prevailing wage is the law of the land and a settled question from our perspective, that our challenges on building housing cannot be simplified to just pointing to one thing or that thing or this thing. It's just, it's not as simple as that. Well, let me just have lightning strike twice very, very quickly for a follow-up. There's an argument that says, yes, this does cost something and adds to the cost, but it's worth it. And then there's an argument for any number of reasons that you just raised, or there's an argument that it actually doesn't cost any more to include these things when you're building local housing. Which bucket of those two do you fall into? I mean, I think it's going to depend region to region and what the prevailing wages are is going to depend on where you are in the state. And that's not just true for construction trade. That's true for a whole number of professions that are covered under the state's prevailing wage law. So prevailing wage exists. It's one of the great victories of the labor movement over the past many decades to ensure that men and women who are moving through a pipeline of learning their craft, learning their trade, committing themselves to some service are able to receive sustainable wages for that work. So the question you asked can be turned right around and say, well, should we have prevailing wages at all? Well, should we have unions at all? And I think you know where we fall on that question. So next one's about homelessness. Again, agree, mostly agree, uh, disagree, mostly disagree. By 2022, an important year for the governor, by 2022, the number of homeless people living in California will have declined. Uh, I don't know, because I think the answer to that question turns on how much more acute the economic consequences of this pandemic get. So I can't predict the answer to that question. I spend every waking minute of my life trying to make sure the answer to that question is yes, the number will be lower. You know, some things are out of our control. And if this pandemic has a, this third wave is more pronounced than we expect, if there's, God forbid, a fourth wave, then we really are in a world in which evictions are the least of our problems, right? And so I think it's really impossible to answer that question. And I don't want to dismiss the question because it's, honestly, it's one of the organizing questions that I spend every single minute of my day thinking about. It's just, I can't predict. And this kind of gets back to where we started in this interview, which is, is 6,000 new units of housing enough? Is 23,000 people inside for Project Room Key enough? The answer is no. Uh, It's better than not having done those things. It's better than having only done half of those things. Is it enough? The answer is no, it's not enough. And we're going to continue and recommit through the budget next year, through partnerships with the legislature next year to keep pushing, to keep doing more so that hopefully when you ask me that question again at the end of 2022, I can say definitively the answer is yes, but it's just too hard to predict. 
So, Jason, I'm going to do one more of these. Here's the hypothetical. Not even a hypothetical, a reality. A luxury condominium goes up in a low-income neighborhood. Does that raise or lower apartment prices nearby? I thought this was a lightning round because that is literally a PhD dissertation <laughs> uh, to answer that question. Um, I, I, I Good can't, retort. I can't I'll take it. I'll take that retort. But please explain yeah. your answer. Okay. Yes. I can't give a pithy answer to that question because it's, I think, one of the fundamental questions that governs how an approach to housing policy. We are short in production in California across every income category, extremely low income, very low income, moderate income, mark, all, we're short in every category. So when we argue about should this unit get built or that unit get built, look, the laws of supply and demand do apply to housing, but that's too reductionist because laws of community also apply to housing, which is when that luxury condo in your hypothetical example goes up, the question is, what is that going to do to the businesses that are also in that community? What is that going to do to the community institutions and nonprofits that depend on clients in that neighborhood? What does it do to property values for existing low-income or homeowners of color? There are so many dynamics that new luxury housing creates. What did it replace? Was it a gas station or was it other low-income housing, right? There are so many factors to that question that it's just, it's not possible to give a pithy answer to that. And I think I'll just respond by saying we just need more housing at every income level. But saying we need more housing at every income level isn't a shorthand way of dismissing the more acute need for extremely low-income and very low-income housing. It's not, it's like a all, all lives matter. No, 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 it's, it's not that. We need housing at all levels of income. We much more acutely need housing for people on the verge of homelessness, much more acutely. And so that's part of why we focus so greatly on that, subsidizing it, trying to permit it and streamline it, work with cities to hold them accountable for zoning for it and all those sorts of things, because the need is so much more acute at that level. So it's just, I, I get the question, I get the prompt. It's just, it's not possible to answer that in a, in a shorthand way. So very last question here, Jason, mm -hmm. what is your biggest beef with how housing policy is covered by the media in California? What, what do we get wrong the most? You never get anything wrong. Everything you guys write is perfect and accurate and gospel truth. If that notwithstanding, I think that the problems on housing and homelessness are so big and have been created over so many years that oftentimes incremental progress is put in the context of the whole size of the problem, which is a natural thing to do and not yes. unfair, but it, it can also be a little bit dispiriting for those of us who work in this space, which is the questions about solving homelessness are literally life and death questions. And when we're able to open up a new 25 unit project in a community that's never had homeless housing, Mendocino County under Home Key is opening its first permanent supportive housing ever in the history of that county. Off the top of my head, know how many units, but it's somewhere, it's a, it's a few dozen right? Yeah. A few dozen units in Mendocino County is not going to solve homelessness. And we can roll our eyes at that and say, that's a less than a drop in the bucket. That's an eyedropper in the bucket. But for those 25 folks and their families and for the community in Mendocino, that's a huge deal. And I, I think oftentimes we focus on the big numbers, LA, San Francisco, Alameda. And we say, if it's not in those cities and if it's not at scale in those cities, it doesn't matter. I sort of reject that because I think there's a program just to sort of close on this on, on a hopeful note. There's a program through HomeKey that we're working on with Imperial County, way down in the southern corner of the state, where Imperial County came together with their local partners and with the community college over there. And they're putting a program together to house a couple dozen homeless or formerly homeless community college students. 
in Imperial County, in the forgotten corner of California, as it's been called, to those students who are able to access that secure housing and therefore potentially be more successful in their education, that's a lifesaver. A dozen, two dozen units doesn't register for Cal Matters, for the LA Times, for the housing podcast, but it does register to those families. I'm not asking that every single thing we do and every unit we open, you guys put on the front page. That's not the point. I think the point is that the incremental nature of this work is in fact the way you make progress on this stuff. And sometimes that I think maybe a little bit gets lost, but please don't take that as a criticism. I appreciate that you guys have put this podcast together to highlight these issues. I would love if you would tell more positive stories about these things, but I think you're doing a great job with this podcast and with your coverage. All right. Well, since flattery, I suppose, gets you everywhere, we can uh, we can leave it <laughs> leave it at this. Jason, anything else you want to communicate to our audience? Well, I am under the impression that Matt Levin is leaving his present employer for greener pastures, and so I wish you Godspeed and good luck there. And Thank Liam, you, I see, and Liam, I see on social media that you have had a major life development in the recent days as well. So Mazel Tov and congratulations Indeed. on that too. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, guys. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And me, Liam Dillon. My Twitter handle is at Dillon Liam. Special thanks to Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks accepting the golden avocado this year. It's a special moment for the podcast. And thanks also again to Stuart Gavin, winner of our contest and a good sport. And nice to hear uh, a normal person's voice on the podcast for a change. Yes, agreed. And Matt, this is our last podcast of 2020. Is that correct? I don't know. I think oh, so. It is our last podcast of 2020. <laughs> you tell me, buddy. I'm checked out. Okay. <laughs> well, and I was going to say after that, it is our next to last one, our penultimate, which is a word I love to use penultimate one together we do hope to have one more before matt heads off to the greener pastures of public radio and no podcast that we've done certainly this year would be possible without the extraordinary work of one victor figueroa available for all your podcast editing needs victor figueroa the man responsible for making my voice sound acceptable to a listening audience. I think Marketplace is in for a rude awakening once they take Victor away from me. Victor, you're the real golden avocado. Thanks again for listening, and we will be back in a couple weeks.